Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off, in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Adriana Sidlali Ramirez on her SEG honorary lecture talk, Seismic Technology in Northern European Waters and the Prevalence of Multiples. In this compelling conversation, Adriana showcases the value of exploring and developing mature oil and gas fields, the value of moving first on new technology, and offers great advice to succeed in the industry. This episode will convince you to sign up for her free lecture. This episode is sponsored by CGG. Instead of seeing multiples in the North Sea as the enemy, why not put them to work? CGG uses multiples to build better velocity models and images that give unique clarity for near-field exploration and development. With its top size data in the Barents Sea, plus new OBN and dual azimuth datasets featuring time-lag FWI, CGG provides unmatched insight into North European waters. Contact CGG today to learn how to see things differently during North Sea exploration. For the full show notes and the link to register for Adriana's tour, visit seg.org slash podcast. Now for our conversation. Let's get started here. I'm excited to, to highlight your upcoming talk. And, and let's, for the audience, kind of get started with a brief overview, you know, a quick 30-second pitch for your talk, which is titled Seismic Technology in Northern European Waters and the Prevalence of Multiples. The history of the world in the last 100 to 120 years is the history of oil as well. Uh, they are intertwined from my point of view, and well, they are intertwined. They start from the quest to find reservoirs, to controlling them, to their impact in quality of life, in our war and peace, global economy, technology and environment. So they, they cannot be separated. So my talk, my talk starts with this history, but I also highlight the key technological developments throughout this time, these 120 years. And in particular, after the 1960s, the focus on, of the talk is on the Northern European waters, but I, I do that. I focus on this part of the world without ignoring the global perspective, because a given geographical area cannot be fully isolated. That historic tour takes us to the present day, where the maturity of this area of the hydrocarbon world, the Northern European waters, appears to reside at two sides of the spectrum. On one hand, we have a large, highly prolific, near full maturity hydrocarbon area. On the other hand, we have the more front frontier place, which tend to be in much uh, complex geological place like uh, basalts, salt, uh, much more complex to, to understand and image. So in one area, we're trying to find what we haven't found because we have found already so much. So we're looking for the subtle or the hidden traps. And on the other area, we're hoping to find gigantic fields. Their business needs are very different but their seismic needs are more similar. One because of the complexity, the other one because is what we haven't found after searching and searching and searching. 
So from my point of view, there is a need for advanced marine seismic methods with fewer compromises and often a more target-oriented approach in working the data and finding what we're looking for. Yeah, you kind of mentioned it in there, talking about this long span of technology that you're looking at. You know, the summary of your talk really does provide a unique commentary on the state of technology and progress in the oil and gas industry. And as a non-geophysicist, one thing struck me, you know, if there is so much risk and unknown at this stage of oil and gas exploration in the northern European waters, why is it still viable to continue exploring and developing in this area for companies? That's actually a, a good question. And it, it probably has more than one answer. And <laughs> yeah. I would say it has at least two parts. So if you think about the more mature area, the one, one aspect is the investment that has been already made in this part of the world, the investment today, and the possibility of that investment becoming a liability. So that's one part from a business perspective. And this is combined with the government perspective. And actually, just last week, I was attending Davos Energy Week, virtual conference this year. <laughs> and Tina Bru, for example, the, the, the Minister of Oil, uh, well, sorry, Energy in, in Norway, Tina Bru said that the goal in terms of hydrocarbon is to maintain the same levels of production. And, and one thing is clear, you cannot produce what you haven't found. And if your production is declining, then you need to find something more. And that is the need for exploration in the mature area. And we all know that oil and gas is going to, to, to be part of the future because it's not only about the traditional purposes, like uh, making sure that Europe does not freeze in the winter, which is very important. But also, you know, we are in a modern world, but where we, we use oil for not only for fuel or oil and gas, for pharmaceuticals like aspirin and surgical materials, mobile technology, lubricants, makeup, clothing, etc. Uh, we are also in this energy transition where oil and gas is part of the equation to have a sustainability approach to that transition. And hydrogen, for example, production, which is one of the big bets for energy, relies a lot on the blue hydrogen where gas is key. So I, I understand this need to maintain production, but as I said, you cannot produce what you haven't found. And the other part of the equation is again, okay, let's say that you don't find anything else in this part of the world, uh, in the mature area, but you still need hydrocarbons. You, you still need to warm the winters of Europe. So, it is a belief that around 40% of the undiscovered resources, at least in the Norwegian sector, are, are still there, <laughs> in the, especially in the open area. 60% of those 40% of undiscovered resources are expected to be in the Barents Sea. And the numbers are not so different in the UK sector, where you expect to have, find more of these giant fields in the in the volcanic regions, in the frontier regions, west of Shetlands, Atlantic margins in the both UK and, and region sector. And as I said, the Barents Sea is, is part of it, of the equation. So it's about maintaining our quality of life as a global quality of life and making sure that the transition has a sustainable way of moving forward. 
Yeah, I understand. And kind of looking like kicking off on that thread, you know, what technological developments have taken place in the Northern European waters in the past decade that have allowed the production to continue to, you know, stay apace? One way of thinking about it is that in the last 10 years, one thing that we have been doing is using existing technologies in existing hardware in more creative ways. And one thing that I would like to emphasize in my answer is the acquisition side, even though, as we both know, the acquisition has to be matched with the proper processing, especially with modern technologies. And one example is simultaneous sources. I think the large-scale implementation, utilization of simultaneous sources, partially and in, 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 in certain types or flavors of this technology, did happen in Norway and the UK. And we can think of triple source, pentasource in, in large-scale utilization. We can think about the developments from theory to production ready, uh, utilization of simultaneous sources like the signal operation that has a requirement of regular shooting patterns, split spread acquisitions, almost continuous source sampling like e-seismic, for example. All of them were either developed or implemented for production on large scale in, in this part of the world, especially on the streamer side. It's not the same in simultaneous sources for OBM because that was done in several different parts of the world in this timeline as well. And this has been combined with different ways as well of using the streamers by having different streamers lengths. In the case of streamer seismic, it has also been used with wide toe of sources. A lot of the tests, for example, on the source side had happened here in terms of source strength, reducing it, reducing it, reducing it, and seeing whether you can still image your targets at depth. The large scale implementation of OBM for exploration pretty much started here a couple of years ago. Multi-component streamers, the feasibility test, the qualification and the first use happen in this part of the world. Uh, I would say also that the feasibility for 3D seismic for deep sea mineral exploration, it is happening now. And it is happening again in this part of the world. And one of the motivations is that, for example, for exploration and production of deep sea minerals, Norway has passed a law to allow and regulate commercial activity. And that is, is going to open new, new business. So it's actually a motivation for us to test and to make this feasibility type of experiments to see what we can bring from our experience in oil and gas, in CCS storage, what we can bring from that experience to make survey designs for deep sea mineral exploration that are cost effective. So there, there, there's a lot of things that have happened. I would perhaps include also CCS. It's not unique here, but a lot of the knowledge and understanding has also come from this part of the world for offshore experiments in particular. Mm. Could you just tell people briefly what CCS is that may not be too familiar with that acronym? Carbon capture and sequestration. I, I think it's going to become a, a well-known acronym very soon. And what are your unique career? I mean, I would one of your as you have gone on your career, you had roles working on new technological developments, and, and I'm curious if 
if that's in those roles, you, you've helped see the value of new technology, maybe in a different way from other geophysicists or, or even management. Um, yes. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> no, I will try to give a better answer than a simple yes. I have had different roles. I have had some roles in really exciting new technology, some roles in more niche technologies. I have collaborated with a lot of people. It has been a fascinated, fascinating trip. But what happened is that in, in my last company in Equinor, I got a very unique opportunity, which was to move from research where I pretty much built my career to the commercial part of the company. Still on a very technical role, and at the beginning for several years, they allowed me to have 50% of my time in research, which I'm very grateful for. <laughs> but the reality is what I ended up doing is working more or less dividing my time in three portions. And one of them was processing in the business part. Another part was the acquisition service design, also in the business part. And the third part was still research. So it was a way of connecting around the silos, interacting with the business units, with uh, pretty much all the contractors, and trying to understand what part of our new developments can make the most impact. Because I think that's perhaps is a little bit of my edge in this industry, which is that I have been in both sides and I can understand the equations and I can understand how beautiful they can be. And some of them are really, really, really nice theoretical or fundamental type of research that, that provide new understanding, new meaning to things that we do. But then from the commercial side, they might not have a huge impact in, in a particular problem. So you need to, to decide and balance those things. How much are you willing to pay for what? And how much time, how much within your boundaries, how do you balance your your variables to get the largest benefit without exceeding those boundaries? And the boundaries can be time, can be personal, can be the goals that you have, can be access to technology, budget, all these things. So I, I think that 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 is one thing that I have been able to to help with and to find how to add value from one thing to another. One of the roles that I have enjoyed the most in the past years is what I call the qualification. I don't call that. Everyone calls it. <laughs> <laughs> qualification of technology. So you have a new technology, you test it, and you say, yeah, it does what it's supposed to do. That's the qualification. But what I'm truly interested in is when is to answer the question to myself and to others. When or where will I recommend this technology? Why will I recommend this technology? That's the key answer. In what scenario is this technology going to give me that 20% or 80% that I need? That is a, a great takeaway here. And and kind of lastly, looking at, at this talk, you know, given your experience and expertise, and, and you kind of talk about in your summary of your talk about companies maybe slightly getting a little bit more risk of you know risk tolerant, let's say, what steps could the industry take to become a little bit more open to new technologies and possibly riskier actions? 
Well, I think that the industry is open to new technology. It depends on the, where you're coming from with that question. But if you think about the downturn, for example, during these past five years, we have not been in the best economy. <laughs> Uh, and there has been a lot of consolidation, especially in the in the service side uh, of the industry. There has been a huge reduction as well of suppliers. But at the same time, we have been very creative, as I said before, in the use of our existing hardware. We have pushed it pretty much to their boundaries. And at the same time, we have been developing much in processing technologies. Some of them is not that much development from the initial idea, but implementation, because a lot of them were invented before the computers were at the level where they could be used in production. So we, we have done a lot of that, but I'm not sure what's the correct answer. But in the industry, we are in a very highly developed industry, if you think about technology. Again, it's been 100, 120 years of development. And in recent years, one thing that was clear was that the huge investments, for example, in acquisition, the huge investments that were normal in the past with all the competition are perhaps not that normal anymore and not that ideal. One of the questions that came to mind and has been discussed at least for three, four years is how many multi-sensor streamers do we need as an industry? If you think about how many billions of dollars were spent in one of them and how much benefit to the, 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 the company that, that made that investment has provided in terms of return of the investment is extremely bad equation. So I think what we really need is to start joining forces in a different way. It's very common to see oil companies in joint industry projects with one service company. It's not very common to see more than one service company working together for the same purpose. And I am on the service side right now, so I'm taking my words very seriously. And we have also, I mean, we're talking because of my honorary lecture at SEG, and I'm also the chair of SIEM, SIEM, the SEG Advanced Modeling Corporation. That's one of the places where we do have collaboration between competitors like service companies with service companies, not only oil companies with service companies, with a single service company, but actually real collaboration and academia and, and, and institutions. And I think that's, that's a place where we can perhaps think of expanding that kind of proposals and interactions and joint industry projects. Another area that is needed for the future, in particular with the AI and the machine learning technological developments, we need more established, well-established, kind of standardized of accepted industry benchmarks. We need to have data sets that pretty much anyone can access easily and test their technology and where we can agree on, on what's a good answer and what's not a good answer, especially when you have technologies that are moving away from standard physics that are, again, based on machine learning. So there, there's there's areas of improvement, of course. Well, that's that's a good reflection here as as we wrap up. Uh, but I, I would love to get your kind of advice in this last little bit here, Adriana. You know, what is one piece of advice you would offer someone 
trying to succeed, looking to succeed as a geophysicist in this field? Be curious. I think sometimes we lack curiosity and we don't talk to the person that sits next to you. And because that maybe that person is working in a completely different field. And it's, again, we have huge understanding of pretty much our different areas or different fields. What we are still struggling with is interaction across silos, is having a common language, is working at the advantages that each one of our disciplines has, that key understanding. And sometimes it's also about sharing data. There's a lot of data, for example, that is measured and QC'd in acquisition for the survey, for operations. And a lot of that data set can be used as pre-knowledge for processing. Well, you can ask around how many people in processing actually truly understand and know about this data that is collected and QC'd and discussed in the operations part. It's, it's, not, it's not that common. It's, it's improving. I know it's improving, but it's still one piece of information. And if you keep going across silos, the way you, you use your data, the way you name your data, the way you store your data, sometimes that also hampers the, the use, the more global use of that data set. So I would say be curious, learn from others, and don't be afraid to take a side move because you might learn much more and you might be able to help connecting some of these dots. Well, I feel like you can hear the the seeds of this talk and, and that advice there. So thank you for, for sharing it and, and sharing a little bit more about your talk. And I look forward to people engaging and you getting feedback on, on this talk in, in the days and weeks and months ahead. Thank you very much. I'm really, really looking forward to, to that feedback and questions. <laughs> Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to the website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all the episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bakomjian, Jennifer Crockett, Ali McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.